Open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We have some verses that we want to look at this morning that reduce man to the ground, that crushes man into the dust, that will let no man stand and think very highly of himself. And this is the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the preaching of the gospel, to go over verses like this and to give the sense. This is the preaching of the cross. And brethren, you are very, very privileged this morning. You are privileged that God has called you, appointed you to eternal life, ordained you to eternal life, that these things would have any meaning for you. You are privileged this morning to hear those things. You are privileged this morning to have your heart opened that you might attend unto those things. You are being told mysteries of the universe that man has not found out. With all the education and witty inventions and advancements of the 21st century, they know less of this than they did a hundred years ago. It is amazing to see the ignorance of man implode upon itself and descend into hell versus the wisdom of God's word. The princes of this world do not understand this. If they had understood that much, they would have kissed the son lest he be angry and they perish from the way instead of crucifying the Lord of glory. Chapter 2 will tell us if the princes of this world had had even a fraction of what you know, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But they didn't know it. So we come to some very important verses. I want to start at verse 17. I want to overlap with last Sunday just a little bit because I want every one of us to know the, the value and the importance of verses 17 and 18, and especially our young children, to know this is why we are the way we are. It would be easy for us to have a church of a thousand members in four years. Easy. We would modify the message and we would downgrade the worship and we would take our money and go deeply into debt for a fancy building. There is within this church sufficient enough dynamic people, sufficient musical ability, that if we were to build the building, modify the message, and downgrade the worship, they would flock here, just like they're flocking to the other places in town that call themselves churches. It would be no problem at all. We would be the nucleus, and we could do that. I hope that it's not even a a little tiny temptation in any heart. We will wait for the Lord to send us those that he has chosen to save. And we'll be content, but we're going to be scriptural. And so we come to verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For those of you that want to understand 1 Corinthians, 
we begin a rabbit trail at verse 17. Because beginning at verse 10 through 16, the Apostle Paul is dealing with the preacher factions at Corinth. And he's going to take those preacher factions back up again in chapter 3. But he runs a long rabbit trail running all the way from verse 17 of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 2, all about the gospel. You know how he ends up chapter 2. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. He's on a rabbit trail this entire time. He's going to come right back to Apollos and Cephas and Paul in chapter 3. But he's on a rabbit trail. He's on a rabbit trail that's productive. Paul doesn't chase rabbits that aren't productive, and he always gets his rabbit. He is crushing the Corinthians down. They were an arrogant people, just like Americans in 2004. And he crushes them down for them to realize that there is to be glory given to only one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He reduces them to nothing. He reduces their Greek heritage. They're only a few miles from Athens. They had many universities. They were considered the light in some circles, at some times the light of the Greek empire, the city of Corinth. He's going to reduce Greek wisdom to nothing. He's going to reduce the converted Jews that are in this city, because that's where Paul began, in the synagogue, to nothing. Then he's going to show them to look around in the congregation and see what kind of people God had saved in the city of Corinth. The poor, the weak, the foolish, and the base. By the time he gets done, you can give glory to only one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And that if you even believe the truth, it's all of God. Now, I want to tell you, I love verse 30, so we got to get there. We want to get there in a hurry because we don't want to take too long. This is very important to me for you to see the forest and see how beautiful the forest is rather than looking for grubs under the bark of the trees. There are beautiful grubs there. And I'll help anyone who wants to look for them later. But we want to get the message and the power punch of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Jesus Christ and the grace of God is the entire basis of our salvation and the gospel is a message of it only and that message is only received by those who are already saved. All of you children need to understand that. The preaching of the gospel does not regenerate men. It doesn't help them get born again. It doesn't get their names in the book of life. It doesn't rescue the perishing. It tells the elect of God how they were saved. Because if God had not brought preachers into this world, we would still be lost in our ignorance without someone teaching us the truth of the gospel. This first verse that we read, verse 17, Paul said that when he preached the gospel, he did not use the wisdom of man's words or the preaching would have been made of none effect. There is an effect produced by the preaching of the gospel. And it is a two-edged sword. The preaching of the gospel, when done properly, drives away reprobates. Makes them uncomfortable, puts them to sleep. That is how you can measure a man. What, how does he respond under the preaching of the gospel in an unvarnished fashion? Does he sleep, doze, complain, groan? Most of them won't even come. That's one edge of the sword. It cuts men and angers them. But there's another blade. There's another edge to that blade. And that is the same preaching of the cross finds God's elect 
and they hear in those unpolished sentences, coming from usually an unpolished man, oftentimes fishermen in the New Testament, a message that they loved, Amen. that matched up with something in their hearts that rejoiced them. Look at an example with me in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, let's see how the the preaching of the gospel by a fisherman who never went to seminary, in fact, probably didn't even go to junior high. Acts chapter 2, we have Peter preaching, and here's the effect of his first sermon. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, This is the crowd in Jerusalem that 50 days earlier had crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when they heard this, that is the sermon of Peter, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That is is an elect person. That is an elect person and that is a regenerated person. The effect of the preaching of the gospel is to go to the man of God and say, what can I do to be more perfect and to please this God that you have just described to me? What can I do to earn the favor of that Christ and Prince and Messiah that you have just described to me? Do you remember what the Jews did to John the Baptist? I mean, they came to John the Baptist. The soldiers said, what shall we do? The publican said, what shall we do? The people said, what shall we do? Because that is the effect of the preaching of the cross. That is one edge of the blade. There is a tender heart there, an elect heart, a regenerate heart. In God's language from the Old Testament, I will take away their stony heart and I will give them a heart of flesh and the preaching of the gospel pricks it. It's just a little little jab from the Lord. It pricks it. This is what you ought to be doing. And that fleshy heart that loves God and fears Him responds by saying, what shall we do? Men and brethren, What shall we do? Because Peter had just said, you with wicked hands have crucified the Lord of glory and God has promoted him to be Lord and Christ. I'd get scared too if I had just a little bit of understanding of that message. But look at Acts 7. Acts chapter 7 is only a little while later. Acts chapter 7, and and it's another group, another section of the same people. And look at the effect it has. This is by Stephen the deacon. And he preaches in a very agreeable sermon all the way down to verse 50. A very agreeable sermon. They were saying amen all the way through it. But then he gives them an invitation at the end. And that is to humble themselves before the Lord Jesus Christ and look at their response. Verse 54. When they heard these things. Now doesn't that sound like Acts 2.37? But this is... This is another profile, another segment of the same people. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. And what did they do to him? They stoned him. That is how popular men who preach the gospel in an unvarnished fashion will be. They'll get stoned to death. They'll be hated and despised and reviled and ridiculed, threatened, and finally destroyed if God doesn't save them. If they preach the gospel without modifying the message. Come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at the two-edged sword that I just showed you from the book of Acts. Same message. Same people. Just a different segment of them. 
One group was elective God and had hearts that were pricked by the message, provoked to want to do something about it, in, to please God and His Son, Jesus Christ. The others had a heart that were cut to the quick, angered by it, and they wanted to kill Stephen. They gnashed on him with their teeth. What a different response. What a different response. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Gnashing on him with their teeth and stoning him to death. What did his face look like while he was preaching? Like the face of an angel, it tells us. What was wrong with their vision? Could they see that his face looked like an angel? Yes. Could they really see that his face looked like an angel? No, it just irritated them. Credible. Pharaoh, here we come again, down to the Red Sea. Let's see if we can chase those Israelites. After all, God's only crushed me ten times already. Maybe I can catch them. What happens to a man's heart and soul if it's not for the grace of God to open it up to hear the truth? So the Apostle Paul said, I did not preach the gospel with the wisdom of man's words, lest I would make the cross of Christ of none effect. That effect that I just described to you, one group of people saying, men and brethren, what shall we do? And a group gnashing on them with their teeth, those two blade edges on the, on the blade of the preaching the gospel are taken away if you modify the message. Both edges go away if you modify the message. And the message is being modified today greatly. We had a brother stand and pray this morning. Let us not see the Lord Jesus Christ, that long-haired, effeminate hippie, standing at some door in a garden, knocking on it. That's the Jesus they're presenting because that's a Jesus that the pagans of this world can get along with because he's such a wimp. They know that they can live any way they want to and make peace with him whenever they feel like it. But the Jesus Christ that is sitting on a white horse with his vesture dipped in blood and a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and a name on his thigh, the word of God, and the armies of heaven following behind him, there's only one way to meet him. There is only one way to meet that Savior, and that is to fall on your face before him and to repent of your sins and to confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that is a huge difference in the preaching of the gospel today. They modify the music. They modify the lyrics. They modify the place where they assemble. They modify the activities of worship. They modify the message. They modify the Lord. They preach a different Jesus. And so both edges of the blade of the gospel are dulled. The reprobates are not driven away because they feel quite comfortable there because they have African music accompanying their worship. So they, they go to work every day with African music and they work every day with African music, and now they get African music in the assembly of God. They're very happy. So the reprobates are in there shaking and moving with the African music. But see, there's no shaking and moving in the New Testament. The shaking and moving in the New Testament is the, the melody that is flowing from a regenerate heart. So it, it changes it all. Then they present this little wimpy Jesus if they present Jesus at all. It might be a young people's lock-in. It might not even be a worship service. You know, next Sunday night, you know what it's going to be, don't you? It's going to be the New England Patriots against the Carolina Panthers. I think those are the two teams in the Super Bowl. We can have Super Bowl Sunday for Jesus. 
So they modify the message, downgrade to worship. And what happens? The reprobates come in and find great comfort there because they feel that they're going to church and doing something good. And the righteous are crushed and discouraged and they don't know why they are so unhappy even though they're the elect of God. They love God in their heart, but they're discouraged because they have not had presented to them a victorious, conquering Lord Jesus Christ to whom you will only approach on his terms, not your terms, and who expects you to live a holy life, and who has a sword that cuts between men and saves his elect and leaves the rest to their own sins. And who toward his elect is the most compassionate father and friend they could ever have. They don't get to hear that message. The reprobates come in, the elect leave, or the elect sit there and have their hearts spoiled by such a foolish message. I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I want you to see the two-edged sword of the proper preaching of the gospel. Oh my, could, could we grow this church? Yes, we could grow this church. Ah, you go listen to some of these churches that are growing and you see the incompetence at their various levels of presentation. We could do a better job than that. We could be the fastest growing church in Greenville County possibly. We wouldn't need God's blessing for it. We just need someone else's blessing for it. As long as the devil was with us, all the reprobates would come in, the unregenerate, carnal Christians would find a happy home. We're not going to dull either blade. Amen. 2 Corinthians 2.14 Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, no matter how small the assembly, and maketh manifest the savour of his knowledge by us in every place. The knowledge of Jesus Christ is presented by gospel preachers. Otherwise, you'd never know it. You cannot learn of Jesus by looking at nature. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. That there is a powerful Godhead with a creative designer that is able to make wonderful things. But it does not show us Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes from the lips of men sent by God to preach a knowledge that is unknown to men by any other vehicle. It is by special revelation. They are called the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. They are called the things hidden from the rest of the world. And you are privileged hearers of them. But wherever they are released by men speaking them, they have two effects. And Paul says, we always triumph. I am pre- This is wonderful. You know, I grew up all my life with a gospel that always lost. Are all of you with me? You know, once in a while, some person would supposedly be saved. There was hardly ever any fruit from their lives. So you know they weren't saved. But it was a gospel that usually lost. They were never like Paul. You know, Paul said, wherever I preach, I always triumph. Because my presentation of the knowledge of Jesus Christ creates a savour. It creates an incense and aroma that comes up into heaven from two different sources. There's two aromas in heaven from the preaching of the gospel. And here it is right here. Verse 15. For we, 
That is the ministry of the apostles and their second generation ministers. For we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. Wow. We, we are a sweet savour. You've never, there is not another church in Greenville that will preach that verse the way I'm telling it to you right now. You lay hold of these things. We are a sweet savour of Jesus Christ to men who are lost and hate it and want to kill the apostles. It is still sweet in the smell of God. Do you know what the Apostle Paul would say to men who didn't like his message? You have judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Go ahead and go to hell. Jesus said the same thing, didn't he? Didn't he address the religious leaders of his day and say, How can ye escape the damnation of hell? We always triumph when we preach the gospel. When we preach it in an unvarnished format. If you modify this message, it is no longer a sweet savour to Christ of either variety. Do you understand the importance of 1 Corinthians 1.17? It's got to be preached the way the Bible presents it. Verse 16. To the one, we are the savour of death unto death. And to the other, the savour of life unto life. When we preached Christ crucified, when we preached the whole counsel of God and how the Lord addresses every aspect of our lives, there are two results. The wicked, the reprobates, a rep, the word reprobate means the opposite of the elect. Elect means chosen, reprobate means rejected. So when I use the word reprobate in this sermon, I've used it several times, what I mean are those that God has rejected, neglected, passed over to choose his elect. It is a Bible term. Right. You can find it in 2 Corinthians 13.5. They're the reprobates. When the gospel is preached to them, they hate it. They yawn. They doze. They sleep. They walk out. They hate the minister. They speak against them. They don't want to go to that church again. There's more interesting churches in town that have better youth programs. You know, I love it when someone calls about our church and wants to know what our youth program is. As soon as you hear the question, you know they've made an allegiance with the devil. What are they wondering about a youth program for and not what Bible version we're using or what is the doctrine of this church? What does the church believe? They don't care as long as there's a good basketball program. We are the savor of, we are a sweet savor to the Lord Jesus Christ, even in those that perish because they reject the message. And the preaching of the gospel is also a sweet savour to Christ of life unto life of those who are saved. One group hears it and says that's ridiculous. Justifying the eternal torment that they will endure. Justifying Jesus Christ coming on a, on a horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. They justify him by the way they treat his message. The most precious message in the history of the world. Do you know what the gospel is? The gospel is this. Jehovah God creator of the universe, dwelt amongst men in a human body. He is the Son of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he now sits at the right hand of power in heaven? Do you believe that he is coming in great might and power with his angels in flaming fire to destroy all them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe that? 
he is coming. But when they despise him and they rail on his preachers and they persecute those preachers, they are justifying their eternal damnation. It is a sweet smell to the Lord Jesus Christ because all it is, what is holding him back? Why hasn't he come yet? But is long suffering for us. They are filling up the measure of their sins. Just like the Amorites, God told Moses, God told Abraham, forgive me, I think he told them both. Listen, it's not time yet to go into Canaan because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. I just want to smell a little bit more of the stench of those people, and then I will unleash you on them to kill every man, woman, child, and beast. Kitty cats of the Amorites were destroyed because of the sin of that nation. They justify God in in his judgment upon them. God is not cruel. Man is wicked. Man is wicked. And the glorious message that he's given us, we want to water it down until it's like a candy cane. Listen, I want to be a sweet savour of Christ into the presence of God when I preach. I don't want to be a candy cane to anyone. I know what the elect will think. They'll think I'm giving them a candy cane, but it's a precious jewel and it's sweeter than sugar. It's honey and honeycomb itself. When they think of the Lord Jesus Christ having chosen them and put them in his army and made them citizens of his kingdom and adopted them as his children, that is a precious message. It's a sweet sovereign either way. Come back to 1 Corinthians 1. My goals are being lost. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want every child in here to understand this verse and every adult. 1 Corinthians 1.17 stands directly opposed to the religious world in America today. This verse condemns Greenville County and the 400 Baptist churches in this county. We do not have a corner on the truth. We believe God does have his elect. We believe God does have those who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal nor kissed him. But we also can see very few of them. This verse says, do not modify the message. Because if you modify the message of the preaching of Jesus Christ, you will make it of none effect. And do you know the whole religious world has a mantra today? It is a mandate. It is their aim. It is their purpose. It is their practice. Change things to make the church acceptable for the world. Modify the message. Downgrade the worship. Downgrade the music. Downgrade everything so that the ungodly and the sinners can feel comfortable worshiping with us. What? Who wants them? The Apostle Paul didn't go looking for them. Where'd Paul go? He went to the most conservative church in every city that he went to, and he walked in there and he said, Men and brethren, to you is the word of this salvation sent. What was the name of that church? Was it the Methodists or the Baptists? The synagogue of the Jews. The most con- They're the only ones that believed in one God. The rest of the cities that he was preaching in, they, were, they didn't even know where to start when they began praying. Do you know they never got past the salutation? Can you imagine in a, being in a religion where you could never get to your requests because you couldn't name all your deities? So you pray to one. I'm just, I'm just ridiculing. Come on. Right. Listen, we worship the Lord as one God. Amen. And Paul went where one God was being worshipped. Right. Whenever he happened into a place where he saw a bunch of idols, He says, this place is very superstitious. And he wasn't ashamed to say that when he stood on Mars Hill with all the Greek philosophers. 
Arist- don't, don't go question me about my history. Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato were all sitting there, and he says, I perceive one thing for sure about your city. You men are very superstitious. Right. Now I want to tell you something that you don't know. Not very many people walked into Mars Hill and said, I want to tell you what you don't know. He said, I want to tell you what you don't know. I want to tell you about God that created the heavens, the earth, and all that in them is. He isn't worshipped in temples made with hands. But I want to tell you something better than that. I want to tell you that he has a son named Jesus Christ who is coming to destroy the world, including you. And he's given this testimony of this fact. He raised him from the dead. You know what they did when they heard of the resurrection of the dead? They laughed at our brother Paul. I smell something. I smell the battle of Actium. I can smell Augustus Caesar crushing the Greek Empire and reducing it to a second or third rate country as it still is today because they wanted to make fun of a preacher of the gospel named our brother Paul as he preached on Areopagus, Mars Hill in the city of Athens. And I, I smell those men, Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato roasting in hell because they had no room in their religion for a sovereign God. They had no room for Jehovah, the one God of Israel. They had no room for the Lord Jesus Christ. And they had no room in their theology for a resurrection of the dead. They judged themselves unworthy of everlasting life. We are not cruel. They are wicked. Jesus Christ is not cruel. They are wicked. You understand this verse is directly opposite of what this world is trying to do right now in Christian circles. They are using every wit that they have, every invention that they can put together to modify every aspect of worship so that it has degenerated in the last 50 years so significantly they now are not ashamed to call it contemporary worship. They're not ashamed to call it casual worship because the God that they have now created and presented to their reprobate congregations is a casual God. But that is not the God of the Bible. There is nothing casual about Him. There is everything holy about Him. And when we meet him, you will think back to messages like this and you will say, why wasn't Jonathan Crosby harder? If you think that I'm hard right now, you have not read the Bible. You have not read this Bible from cover to cover and realized how Jehovah operates among men. He owes us nothing. He is not a debtor to us except to punish us everlastingly for our rebellion. That verse, you young men, That verse right there condemns whatever's going on in our city, and that verse tells us why we don't do what we could do to grow this church. We want to grow this church in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're growing in it right now, not in numbers. We'll trust the Lord to send us numbers, and if he doesn't send them, we'll generate them ourselves. How'd you like Genesis 24-60 yesterday? Laban and Bethuel said to Rebekah as she's leaving to go meet Isaac, Thou art our sister. Be thou the mother of thousands of millions. And let thy seed possess the gate of those which hate them. Did that prophecy come? I gave it away, didn't I, with that word. Did that prophecy come true? Do you know who is in that seed? Oh, I love you, brethren. Yes, it is us. 
We are the thousands of millions because we come through Jacob, through Christ, spiritually. So all you young couples, just keep all that in mind. We'll grow the church from the inside. If that's what the Lord leaves us to, we'll trust him to add to our number whatever he sees fit to be saved. Because that's where they come from. You know, in the last couple of verses of Acts chapter 2, it says the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. He'll do it. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, For it hath pleased the Lord to put the members into the church that he has. It's the Lord's work. Verse 18 explains verse 17. Verse 17 told us, I do not modify the message, because if I modify the message, I will defeat the purpose and effect of the message. I will make the preaching of Christ of none effect. Now, Paul was pretty educated. Apollos was quite eloquent. The rest of the apostles were quite ignorant. But even the ones that were educated and eloquent, they didn't use that education or that eloquence in order to polish the gospel to make it more more palatable for the more refined segments of society. They just unleashed the unvarnished truth of Scripture, even when they were eloquent, even when they were educated. The Apostle Paul could quote Greek minor poets. He could quote minor Cretan minor prophets over in Titus chapter 1. The Apostle Paul was no stooge when it came to uh, learning. Right. He was well educated, but he didn't use it. He's, he's telling us here, and he's going to tell us again in, in chapter 2. Right. Look at the explanation. Verse 18, which is another key verse of this chapter. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. And I explained that verse last Sunday. I know that. I know I'm repeating right now because these two verses are crucial for us to understand why we are the way we are and why we are not going to change the way we are. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Reprobates that are on their way to hell find the gospel to be ridiculous ridiculous a message of some carpenter's son who was killed by the romans and supposedly rose from the dead only being witnessed by a bunch of fishermen uh-huh and then you ought to you ought to hear the list of rules that this christ has for all of his followers <laughs> you should see them if you go and offend them If you go and take from them, they smile at you and bless you. If you call them names, they'll just pray for you. I've seen them even burned at the stake. And they're singing. Crazy, aren't they? For the preaching of the cross is them that perish foolishness. The gospel cannot help a man who is not one of God's elect children. Wouldn't matter how long I preached to him or what, how good the arguments were. Look at this. Come back to Luke 16. Luke 16. What if we had a real... Now, some of you already know where I'm going. Remember, I've got to teach your children too. Luke 16. Do you know that this verse cuts against everything that is taught? If we have better music or if the preaching's a little bit better, 
or you illustrate it with more illustrations, or you get some athlete to come and preach the sermon, there's more people that could be saved. That's what's taught today. Do you know what Abraham is going to tell us about the preaching of the gospel? What if we had a real revival service? I don't mean where Benny Hinn is knocking people down with his little uh, slaying them in the spirit, but I mean where we got somebody to come back from the dead. That is a revival service. I mean, Tom Brady may be playing in the Super Bowl, but what if we brought back Lazarus, who came back from the dead? Now, what if a man stood before wicked men that were only interested in this life, and he said, I died and went to heaven, and I saw the rich man in hell? Now, what if a man came back from the dead? Do you think it might influence people to get saved? As they like to use that expression, get saved. Don't you want to get saved this morning? If you're not saved, you don't want to get saved. If you're saved, you know that God saved you and you didn't get saved. You were saved by God, by His grace. So we've got a man coming back from the dead. What does Abraham tell us about that? Abraham said in verse 29 of Luke 16, Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Why don't they just go to the synagogue and hear the scriptures opened? And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, that's not going to work with my brothers. But if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. This is the truth of the Bible. He said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. There is no modifying of the message to help God make up his elect. You do not do it that way. God has to change their hearts. And this rich man had a whole family that was going to have a family reunion with him in hell. Because they did not care for the God of Israel. They did not care for the scriptures of the God of Israel. And it wouldn't have mattered if a man came back from the dead. It wasn't going to help. Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah 26. For the preaching of the cross is them that perish foolishness. A reprobate, a man that is not born again, a man on his way to hell, cannot be helped with the gospel. You can't talk to him. You can't read Bible verses to him. You can't preach to him. You can't write him. You can't help him. That's the message of the New Testament. It's a message that's almost lost today. A man must be born again first. And Jesus said that. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, now, if you can't see it, how are you going to believe it? If you can't believe it, how are you going to enter into it? If you can't enter into it, how are you going to submit to it? Except a man be born again. They read that verse and don't even see a thing there except, don't you want to get born again this morning? We have to be born again with the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no amount of preaching. There is no method. There is no amount of eloquence that can help a man that is not born again see the kingdom of God. Because it is a spiritual thing, and you have to have a spiritual man inside to be able to recognize it. All they want to do, they want to cater to the fleshly lusts of men in hopes that they might change and repent. Listen to what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 26, 10. Verse 10. Let favor be showed to the wicked. So we send money to feed starving babies all over the world. And it said, this is the ministry of the gospel. Let favor be showed to the wicked, 
yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. It doesn't matter what you do to him, and it doesn't matter where you take him. Go ahead and adopt a reprobate child. Adopt a reprobate child and give them the very best environment that you possibly can. You cannot change their heart. Only God can change their heart. No amount of favor that you show to them will work. This verse says it as well as Luke 16. Come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The Bible tells us that a man in the flesh cannot please God. Romans chapter 8. The Bible tells us the natural man, that's a man not saved, cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. No matter how I might present them or how another man might present them, it's not going to work. Got to have a spiritual man first. And what makes the difference between a natural man and a spiritual man? The work of grace. The work of God in regenerating that man and giving him a whole new man inside. And we're to put on that new man. Brethren, we have a new man within us by the grace of God. Much more can be said in these verses, obviously. The gospel is the power of God to those which are saved. The preaching of the cross isn't literally foolishness. As the first half of the verse says, it's perceived as foolishness by those that aren't saved. The preaching of the cross isn't literally the power of God. It is perceived, realized, and understood as God's power by those who are already saved. Notice those verb tenses again in the second half of verse 18. But unto us which are saved, that is a perfect tense, passive voice, verb construction, those people that were already saved, they hear the preaching of the gospel, and it is to them a disclosure, it is information about the power of God, that he could do what he did. You say, what power? The virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is power. The incarnation of Jehovah in human flesh, that is power. The resurrection from the dead, that is power. The ascension into heaven, that is power. Any more questions about what the power of God is? We just scratched the surface, didn't we? We hear about the message of Jesus Christ and we see in it the power of God because the heart is changed by the Lord God himself because he's always had his children and he's just sending a little message to us by the preachers of the gospel to tell his children, this is how much I've loved you and this is what I've done for you so that you can spend eternity with me. That is the only reason I exist. I'll never make a single child of God, nor has any man ever made a child of God in the history of this world except the man Christ Jesus. He paid for the adoption of all of us. I've just come to tell you you've been adopted, how you were adopted, the price that was paid, and how he wants his children to behave, and a little bit about what he's got in store for you. That's all I am. That's all I've got. Verse 19. Paul pulls from the Old Testament, the book of Job, to defend what he's just said, that the Lord loves to cut through the wisdom of man and reduce us to nothing. It is written, this is the only quote from the book of Job in your New Testament. It's not even Job and it's not even Elihu. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. That's not very nice, is it? God says, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. 
the smartest men in the world. These wise are those that think themselves wise. This is all sarcastic through here. It's difficult to follow it unless you understand the apostles being very sarcastic with the wisdom of this world. The educated ones of this world, those with the high IQs, those that consider themselves wise and are perceived to be wise by the rest of this ignorant race, he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Those men that think they are something in rejecting me, I will destroy them. I will reduce them to insanity. And we live in the fulfillment of this. Where do we come from? Listen, even pagans knew better. Pagans, they'd have crazy stories sometimes, but they knew that a God had formed them. Now it's a big bang of chaotic... You know, I've been through all that before. It's ridiculous. Capital punishment is not fit for murder. Now you've got to be insane to, 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 to preach that, to believe that. Abort babies, but save little seals? Are you kidding me? What's happened? Same-sex unions and allowing them to adopt children? Make, giving it legal support in our country? Are you crazy? Two men in bed together? That is inconvenient. In the literal, fullest sense of the word. Why? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. We, we try to claim full literacy in our country. We send kids to 13 years of school to get a high school diploma, which makes them barely literate these days. But then we send them off to college for a few more years, worshiping at the altar of education. And God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise because they have rejected the wisdom that I gave. Paul quotes that to support what he's just said, that the preaching of the gospel is such a two-edged sword to cut the wise people of this world and to prick the foolish people of this world. He goes on to mock the wise in verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where, where is the scholar? You know, what, what words do you want to use that will fit this verse into the 21st century? Because this verse applied then and it applies today. Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Where are all the philosophers, the PhDs, the doctors of philosophy that want to speculate and argue and dispute and debate the origin of man, the purpose of man, and to us? Where are they? This is no different than Elijah on Mount Carmel. Why isn't Baal responding? You pagans, cut yourselves a little more. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's sleeping. And this is the Lord saying it to the wise men of this world. Where is the scribe? Bring your best scribe, the most scholarly man you've got. You know, the ones like that, pre that teach at Bob Jones University who like to tell you on the covers of their books that they read a book a day. Now, that's a modest man, isn't it? When he writes a book and he wants to put on the cover of that book, I want you to know about me that I graduated Phi Beta Kappa and I read a book a day. That's modesty at its highest level. That is the head of the Bible department. That is the chairman of the Bible department at Bob Jones University. And yes, his name is Dr. Stuart Custer. I got another problem. What's he calling himself a doctor for? Listen, if other men, if other men are that ignorant to call him a doctor, why is he putting that in the cover of his book? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Where is the scribe? Bring me your Dr. Custer's. 
bring them to me, and let me see how much they know. Now that's using a Christian, a so-called Christian doctor. Then there's all the doctors of the world. Bring them to me. Where are they? They are nothing in comparison to the wisdom that I give. I have destroyed them. Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Dr. Custer has been the single man most involved in the destruction of the confidence of young men going to Bob Jones University in the King James Bible. He, more than any other, is responsible for undermining the faith of all those young men that come into that place not knowing better but wanting to be preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ using a King James Bible. He doesn't know where the Bible is. What he describes as the Bible has never been a Bible read by anyone in the history of the world because the original autographs were never put together in a book for anyone. No one has ever seen a book of originals. There are only copies and copies of copies of copies of copies and translations of copies of translations of copies. When I look at those words, hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world, I see it so much in Christian theology. Do you know there's a whole science called textual criticism? There's higher criticism and lower criticism. It's horrible. Most of it came out of Germany, and God took that country and flattened it twice. There's a reason why, because Germans are pagans. If you go back and look at Germany, in the, in the 19th century, the 1800s, so many of the pagan philosophies came out of Germany. Whether it's Karl Marx or Friedrich Nietzsche and everyone in between, so much pagan theology came out of Germany, and God just went, <laughs> flattened them down to abject poverty twice just smashing them into the ground. And that one's pretty obvious to see because out of that country came rebellion against God. Try to go to Germany today and find Bible believers. I mean, they're pagans. They're pagans. They're just modern European pagans. And God's flattened them twice. God said, where is the disputer of this world? They wanted to sit in criticism of his word. They wanted to sit in criticism and say, that ain't the word of God. More of that flowed out of Germany than any other country of Europe. And they reaped the results of it. And God has left that nation. Thankfully, there were in this nation a bunch of men that still wanted to hold the King James Bible. And hope, thankfully, there are still some that do. And God has had mercy on us in spite of horrible wickedness. Because there are still men that love his word and know that he only is the source of wisdom. And there is no wisdom in the learning of this world. For after, now listen, verse 21. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. What does that verse mean? When God looked down from heaven to see if men were going to learn anything about him, he saw that men were not going to learn anything about him. And so he sent men to preach the gospel so that those that believe could be saved to know him. This word saved here is different than the word saved up in verse 18. You say, how can you do that with the word of God? Because 2 Timothy 2.15 tells me to do so. This saved in verse 21 is a practical phase of salvation. I have to rightly divide the word of truth so that it makes sense. Verse 18 is a salvation that comes before hearing the word of God. Verse 21 is a salvation that comes by hearing the word of God. And it's a salvation to know God. Because God in his, in his foresightful wisdom looking down, saw that men would not learn about him if it were not for preachers of the gospel to bring that message. So he chose, it pleased God, by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 
Now, what I'm preaching to you isn't really foolishness. It's just perceived to be foolishness by the rest of the world. And it's that very vehicle that they, just, that they ridicule that is to your salvation. Because it's by it that we learn about God, heaven, our purpose, our origin, where we're going. Heaven, hell, sin, righteousness, and our Savior, who is the most important piece of information in the gospel of all. Verse 22, this is important, these verses. God did take a marketing survey of the world. Most churches today are started that way. You go into a community, a church will have a market analysis done of their particular segment of the city, and every city is broken up. There's the upper, there's the upper income section of the city. There's the lower income section. There's a retirement section. Every city has a retirement section. Every city has the young, up-and-coming couples in a certain area, so they take a marketing survey. And they adapt their services and their church building, everything, get, get a young minister in to appeal to that. If, it's a young, if they're appealing to that young sect, they do it. It's very, it's very uh, cut and dried, mechanical, professional today to start a church. That's how they do it. It's like they're opening up a company, a retail store in some segment of the city. They want to do traffic counts to determine if they ought to have a retail store there. Well, God took a marketing survey. I've told you this before. I just want you to, I want you to remember these things. Because the whole world's against us. God took a marketing survey. And here's what he found out. His marketing survey came back and said, in order for the Jews to believe on you and your son Jesus Christ, you need to give them some more signs. In order for the Greeks to believe on you and Jesus Christ, you need to couch it in philosophical language of man's wisdom. For the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom. And you know what God said to his marketing survey? Deep six it. Throw it in file 13. Get it out of here. But we preach Christ crucified. Even though, even though it was known by God what the Jews wanted and what the Greeks wanted, we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews, a stumbling block. There's the other edge of the blade, isn't it? Not only was it neutral, it was a stumbling block to the Jews. And unto the Greeks, foolishness. It wasn't just neutral to Greeks, it was foolishness to Greeks. But unto them which are called which is you, brethren, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You hear the message of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and he is the wisdom of God to you and the power of God. The wisdom that God could ordain such a wonderful means of salvation and the power of bringing it to pass. You've got to go to 1 Peter chapter 2 with me for just, just a couple seconds here. 1 Peter chapter 2, I want you to see about that, this choice that God made to preach something that was not compatible with the wisdom of men. He knew what the Jews wanted. Remember? The Jews came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, and they said, show us a sign that we can know you're the Son of God. As if he hadn't done any already. How many had he already given them? Thousands? He said, I'll give you one. Bury me and put me in the ground, just like, and I'll come out of it in three days. They can't even, Christians today can't even hold that message, can they? First Peter chapter 2, verse 6, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, 
the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. This is the message of God. If you hear in the gospel a message of Christ and you love it, and to you he is precious, you were appointed to that end. If you hear the gospel and you hate it, and it is a stone of stumbling, and it is a rock of offense, God ordained Jesus to be just that way, and you were appointed to that. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, but unto them which are called. I am not going to run long on the word called. Some men like to make it the most esoteric, mysterious word in the New Testament. I'll tell you what the word called means. It's going to tell you right in the context. Those that are chosen. Watch. Verse 26, for you see your calling. Well, now, how do we see calling? Verse 27, by looking around and seeing whom God hath chosen. The calling of someone is God's choice of them. When it says in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul called to be an apostle, did that mean that God yelled out of heaven, Paul, how would you like to be an apostle? Or was he appointed to be an apostle? Do you think he says that in some other epistles instead of the word called? Uh Uh-huh. Do you think he says he was ordained to be an apostle? Uh Uh-huh. That's what it means. Now, follow this. Paul's preaching in Acts of Pisidia in Acts 13. And he says to the Jews, you have judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. From here on, we turn to the Gentiles. You know what verse 48 says? And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. That's what it means in 1 Corinthians 1.24. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. But unto them which are ordained, appointed, chosen to salvation, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And we know that from the context, and then we know it by comparing Scripture. If you want to say, but isn't there within the call of God, his appointment of men to salvation, a literal call where he brings them into life? Yes. Go to John 5.25 and find there the Son of God speaking and raising men from the dead spiritually. If you want to get right down to a call, but he doesn't offer. Jesus Christ does not call in John 5.25 and say, hey, would you like to get born again today? He says, live. Just like he's going to say in the last day. Remember the comparison there? The parallelism in John chapter 5? For the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. And he's not going to say, would you like to come to the day of judgment? Please think. No, no invitations. Come here. And all men will appear. I hope I've helped you with verse 24. Because God has chosen us to salvation. He chose us to salvation before the world began. We hear the gospel and rejoice at it. Because the foolishness of God, what men think is foolishness, is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God is able to find all of his elect through proper preaching. If preaching is done and men will get up and do the job, God is able to find his elect. When they hear it, they believe it. Yes, there are exceptions. This is the general rule for anyone in Corinth that had believed it, obeyed, been baptized, and was following Jesus Christ. This is the route that it followed. Yes, among those elect, the range of obedience to the gospel ranges from Lot to Paul. It's pretty severe in its range. 
But if you ever see in the gospel the power of God and the wisdom of God, it's because you've been called, chosen, appointed, ordained to salvation. And that's how you can know. Do you love the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you love hearing about Jesus Christ? Now let's really get the rubber down to the road. Do you love to obey him? Do you treat him like he's Lord so that when you read something in his word and you hear it from the pulpit, even though it steps on a particular part of your life that you want to protect, you're willing to give it up for the sake of Jesus Christ? That is believing on Jesus Christ and seeing in him the power and wisdom of God. If you really see in Jesus Christ the power and wisdom of God, you're going to fall on your face before him and obey him in every area of your life. We come to verse 26. He's still crushing the Corinthians. Look what he says. For ye see your calling. Now, what this means is look around. Look around in the church and see whom God has chosen. The ones that God has ordained to eternal life. When Paul gets done with them, there's going to be no reason to glory in men. Because he's about to take them down to the bottom. For ye see your calling, brethren how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. Look around, and in the opinion of the world, there are not many wise men, mighty men, or noble men in this assembly, nor was there at Corinth. We look like Corinth. Because the world would look at us and say, there's nobody important in there. Just like they wouldn't have at Corinth. You know what? We're in good company. Does that hurt your feelings? I just said that about us. You don't like being in the army on white horses behind the king of kings and lord of lords? Remember, this is all sarcastic. It's what the world thinks is wise. It's what the world thinks is mighty. It's what the world thinks is noble that is being referenced here in verse 26. What is true wisdom? We have little children in here that have true wisdom. If I say to them, where did you come from? God, where'd the world come from? God made it. Who paid for the sins of all men, or all the elect? Jesus. Where's all the truth in the universe? In the Bible. Amen. That's wisdom. Amen. Right. Now they look at our church and they say, there's no wisdom in there, there's no mighty men, and there's no nobility. I'll tell you who's a noble man. We're told in Berea that they were more noble because they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so, and then they believed it and obeyed it. Amen. In Acts 17, 11, and 12, that's true nobility. This verse is saying from the world's perspective. That's why it has the words, after the flesh. Mm-hmm. Okay? You look around, and, and the apostle said, you can see that not very many, mighty, wise, mighty, or noble, were called. Verse 27, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are, which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. Now that's quite a comparison in there. God's chosen the foolish things, the weak things, the base things, the despised things, and things which are nothing. And you know who he's talking about? Can you handle it? He's talking about you. Can you, get down, can you get down under the mighty hand of God? If you'll get down under the mighty hand of God, He will exalt you in due time. Amen. I want to be exalted by God, not by men. Men exalt lesbians. Men exalt Hollywood stars as important people. 
Men exalt politicians as important people. Men exalt athletes as important people. Remember, the gorillas tossing coconuts in a basket get exalted to the highest levels of our society. Remember, little lesbian female vocal artists are put up as stars of our society. Forget being exalted by man. Get down under the mighty hand of God and let him lift you up as a son of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. This God is putting down the Corinthians and God is putting down all men because this scripture was written to all that in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and it is to us as well as to them. And the result is that no flesh should glory in his presence. No minister can glory and no member ought to ever glory in a minister. I hope you can see the contextual basis for the words. Forget Peter, forget Apollos, forget Paul. The Lord Jesus Christ is all in all. And if you look around, look at us. We are the poorest of, of Corinth. And if you look around, we are the poorest of Greenville. And that ought not to bother us. For not many mighty, not many rich, not many wise, not many noble have been called that no flesh should glory in his presence. God does not want us glorying in any man here. And he doesn't want us glorying in any man in heaven. And we're not going to glory in any man here because the Lord Jesus Christ only is going to get the glory in this church. And I can promise you about what's going to happen in heaven. Amen. There's going to be glory given only to the Lord Jesus Christ. No man's going to be anything there. Don't think about getting to heaven and thanking anyone to help get you there except the Lord Jesus Christ. My favorite verse. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. All the spiritual blessings of eternal life and all the blessings that God has in store for all of his elect are because we're in Christ Jesus. And this verse, in a very subtle and concise way tells us how we get into Christ Jesus. Do you see it? But of him. Now, who's the him? God. But of God, by God, through God, we are in Christ Jesus. We are nothing in this world, but God has, he's already mentioned God has chosen us. God has called us. He's already mentioned that Christ crucified the cross is precious to us because it was for us. But now he's explaining it in one verse. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. This is the most important information that has ever been conveyed to men in the history of the universe. It is not to whether they can get some stupid contraption on the planet Mars. Big hoop-de-doo that they got some tin cans up on the planet Mars. This is the most important information ever conveyed that God was in Christ reconciling the world of his elect unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed to us the word of reconciliation. But of God, but of him, are ye in Christ Jesus. This message comes, you can't learn it from looking at the stars. You can't learn, learn it from looking in the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean. You can't learn it anywhere else but in the word of God. And here's the information that comes. God has chosen us, you, by name, before the world began, in Christ Jesus. Now, is Christ Jesus worthy of you being put into him? And is is he sufficient to take care of you? Well, we have the second half of the verse. Who of God? Oh, we've got God operating again. Who is a pronoun? To whom is it referring? 
Christ. God has put us in Christ. And what has God made? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who of God is made unto us wisdom. There is all the wisdom of God in the salvation of our souls through Jesus Christ our Lord. How wise is the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he sufficient to plead your cause at the right hand of God? Does the Bible say in him are are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? I get to tell you that God was in Christ and a man has been on this earth in whom are hid, were and ever shall be hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. For what purpose? That there would never be a shortage of intelligence to save your souls to the glory of God. He has made unto us wisdom. And we hear the message and we see that he was most wise. I don't care if you want to consider the smallest events of his life where he could confound the Pharisees or you want to think the greatest things that he ever did in the presence of God as he approached the throne of God and was able to take the book out of the hand of him that sits there, he is wise. He's also made unto us righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ came and lived in this world under the strictest religious regimen there has ever been. And he obeyed every single clause of the law of God for you and me. He is made unto us righteousness. And so that before God, because we are in Christ by God, and Christ was made perfect by God for us, we are seen in the righteousness of Christ, in the sight of God. He has also made unto us sanctification. Jesus Christ was the Holy One of God. Isn't that what all the devils called him? We know who thou art. Thou art the Holy One of God. Sanctification is to make us holy. We are put in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is made unto us sanctification because he is the vehicle of making us absolutely holy. You know, a whole sermon could be preached on that. It's been done before for you. I hope you don't forget that little word, sanctification. And he's made unto us redemption. Jesus Christ paid the price and bought us back from the claims of God's law against us. The word righteousness is a legal term. The word sanctification is a religious term. The word redemption is an economic term. The word wisdom is is an intellectual term. I want to tell you something. I present to you this morning the Lord Jesus Christ, unknown to all men without the revelation of foolish preachers who come bringing the message that is considered to be foolish about the Lord Jesus Christ. God put us in him before the world began, and God made him perfect in wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Amen. That, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. God has saved us and made a discriminating difference in this world's population and called us out of this world to be his children. He has done all the operations of grace sufficient for it. The message comes to us and we rejoice in it. You can know that you are the elect of God. You can know you are the elect of God by believing this message that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he is Lord and humbling yourself before him and obeying his commandments. And you can make your calling, yes, your calling and election sure. May Jesus Christ be praised.